is a really sensitive and controversial subject today that I can't talk to kids directly about, so I'm coming to you with it instead. The question of whether we are discipling our kids into the scriptural promises of good spiritual fruit, which comes along with trusting God and yielding to the Spirit, or whether we're succumbing to culture and teaching them the opposite. And it's difficult because oftentimes church culture is incredibly worldly, and especially when we've convinced ourselves that our church, our denomination, and or our faith traditions are somehow immune. And am I just talking to myself here, or are you getting uncomfortable too? Or are you just thinking about someone else's faith walk? Personally, I'm thinking about mine right now, as I should be. My kids didn't always have the best example when it comes to faithfully doing what it takes to follow a very countercultural Messiah, as countercultural then as he is today. Actually, let's be honest, my kids never had the best example except when I was reading directly from the red letter words in context. Speaking of which, I recently heard about this thing, and it's supposed to be a red-letter-only Bible where I guess it only has the words of Yeshua, or, you know, you may call him Jesus. I went through a few pages of the Gospels just for fun and looked at what some, uh, some of what he said out of context, and it was not good. Having never actually read such a thing, I'm not interested in spending money or time to do so because we need all of the Gospels and not just edited versions. I may have it all wrong, but still, it just struck me as kind of funny, but in an unfunny way. So if one of you have read a red letter only Bible, please send me an email to enlighten me. Hi, I'm Tyler Don Rosenquist, and welcome to Character in Context, where I teach the historical and ancient sociological context of Scripture with an eye to developing the character of the Messiah. However, everything changed about a month ago, actually two months ago, when the Lord told me in no uncertain terms that my days of teaching adults are over. So now this portion of my ministry is devoted to teaching adults how to teach kids by making sure that we are supporting their growth and faith in the Messiah instead of hijacking it, which we often do. Yeah, it's super easy to do, hijacking it. I've done it. You've done it. Let's stop doing it and teach our kids how to take Yeshua seriously as the greater Moses, the greater temple, and the greater prophet whom Matthew tells us he is. So from now on, this is a satellite ministry of Context for Kids, which has become my primary ministry. Lots for adults to learn still, but geared more toward discipleship and less toward context studies but still very much contextual. I still have a ton of teachings for grownups at theancientbridge.com and on my YouTube channel. And I think that most of the listeners to Context for Kids are probably grownups anyway. So you can catch me there as well if you enjoy crawling through Genesis at a snail's pace and linking everything to Yeshua. I also have curriculum books and all that jazz available on Amazon. All scripture this week is from the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, unless I say otherwise. So, yeah, in mid-November, the Lord broadsided me and told me to focus completely on teaching kids and equipping caregivers, you know, whether it's 
parents, brothers and sisters, aunts, uncles, grandparents, Sunday school teachers, or just anyone who really cares about kids. Not focusing on adults anymore. And I've known it was coming since 2015, but teaching adults was something I had to learn first because teaching what I teach to kids is much more difficult and the tightrope I have to walk is far more perilous. I would rather teach something wrong to a grown-up than a kid, you know? And I have to stay away from politics and sex and anything that's going to cause division between children and their parents or undermine that relationship. I have to be doubly careful about the integrity of what I'm teaching. We all teach wrong things, that's inevitable. But the way we teach things is even more important. Teaching adults, people can get away with a lot of nonsense and some appallingly bad behavior, even though we shouldn't. But with kids, we're laying the foundation for the behavior they will think is acceptable from the pulpit and what isn't. And that's a scary responsibility. Really, kids became my priority over three years ago when I started the radio show for kids, but now they are the only show in town as far as I'm concerned. I still teach and pay attention to you guys when I need to support what I'm teaching the kids in ways that I can't do personally. Like what's upcoming, uh, teaching Sodom and Gomorrah when we get to Genesis 19. After this series, I'm teaching on being like Jesus now. Honestly, kids need to have Yeshua. And I always call him Jesus when teaching kids so that everyone's clear who I'm referring to. I'm not interested in being confusing. And he has to be their foundational baseline because, dang, those patriarchs and kings did some messed up stuff that the Bible doesn't make any excuses for, and neither should we. When we start with perfection, with Yeshua, we can avoid a lot of the problems that come when parents and teachers believe that they have to call the bad stuff good. Oh, we have only one perfect example, just one. Not Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Rebecca, Jacob, Moses, or anyone else. When we normalize the teachings of Yeshua, our own lives change and our kids see it. Okay? Okay. Oh, and just FYI, I do not teach kids the way I teach you guys. I am not as direct or confrontational with them or blunt like I have to be on topics like this. I break things down with them and we explore things slowly from the Bible and from the history of the ancient Near Eastern and first century worlds. I believe we can be confrontational when absolutely necessary while still being kind and gentle, but firm and self-controlled. We'll see how this goes in time. However, you know, I'm not going to be that way with kids. I don't find it productive or effective or edifying for them. And they deserve to be able to learn to think critically so they have the ability to make up their own minds without manipulation or too much interference from a non-parent like me. So I, I got to manipulate my own kids. <laughs> so that's where my mind is about teaching adults versus teaching kids, just FYI. That goes for my radio shows and my books. There are Lots of sermons out there um, that are directed at how we and our kids are worldly, right? And that's not a bad thing. We should want our kids' heroes to be more like Mr. Rogers and the great saints of the past. People like Gladys Elward and Cameron Townsend. 
but they don't often even know who they are. Everything is Taylor Swift and Beyonce and sports stars and actors and, and now influencers and all that. We had no influencers when I was a kid, so it's weird for me. Music and movies and sports are fine. Don't get me wrong, as I really enjoy music and movies, but they aren't our examples of how we should behave. They are cultural and not countercultural. And that's just obvious. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. The church largely focuses on preaching against all that, but is that the biggest problem facing the body of Messiah? I really don't think so. Yeshua didn't really talk about that stuff at all. He could have spent time talking about stuff that would make what we deal with now look tame. I mean, when was the last time your kids saw someone nailed to a cross along the roadway or death matches in the arena? What he did talk about was the character of the believer and especially in the Sermon on the Mount. And before Matthew wrote his account, including the Sermon on the Mount, there were oral traditions of the teachings of the Messiah passed around among the congregations. And Paul must have known them well because his letters are very much obsessed with and focused on promoting the character instructions of Yeshua. In fact, get rid of Paul and you get rid of the hardest teachings in the entire Bible on what it means to love neighbor and enemy in real life. Yeshua spoke in sweeping generalities to a Jewish audience, but Paul had to confront the day-to-day -day nonsense that former pagan Gentile believers were getting into with infighting and, and generally just being jerks. And sometimes even being gross, okay? Get rid of the Sermon on the Mount and Paul and Judaism and Christianity both get a whole lot easier to live out. And since Constantine brought the military into the faith, that's exactly what started to happen. Did you know that the early church took the Sermon on the Mount and the commands to be peacemakers and meek and loving toward enemies very seriously? This while they were being thrown to the lions in the arena. If anyone ever had a reason to not take Yeshua's hardest command seriously, it was definitely them. But their witness brought down normative paganism in the Roman Empire. It's crazy and upside down, but no one can argue with the success. Paul spent a lot of time giving individualized instructions to the different congregations he founded throughout the Roman Empire based upon what was and was not respectable within the different cultures. Obviously, Rome, Ephesus, Jerusalem, Corinth, and Antioch are all going to have very different local laws, ideals, and traditions, even though they were all under the umbrella of the Roman Empire. In some places, women weren't even allowed to be educated. In others, the majority of the population was enslaved or retired military in their families. Imperial cult was celebrated zealously in one city, but was more of an afterthought in others. So they had to be taught to be countercultural within their culture. And it was a tricky situation to be respectable in all the right ways, but to be very different where the culture was oppressive and antichrist. The difference, and this is where we can most help our kids, was in the character they were commanded to have on display at all times. 
Their character was not to have a shred of worldliness, and character, of course, is about our mental and moral qualities. It's not only about how we think, but about how what we think or claim to think manifests in what we're actually doing. Men of the Roman Empire were expected to be adulterers, while women could be executed for it. But when it came to ground zero and Yeshua was speaking to his fellow Jews, he even told the men quite plainly that they couldn't exalt themselves over the lust of the Gentile men, whose perceived masculinity was enhanced by being sexually aggressive when they were looking at women lustfully and or divorcing their wives over frivolities in order to marry some other woman. He was saying that it's all the same thing as what the Roman men were legally doing in broad daylight. Yeshua was saying, frankly, that lust isn't inevitable and that when we view one another truly as human beings, brothers and sisters of the same Father in heaven, that we will not degrade each other with lustful and dehumanizing thoughts. In fact, it really should be difficult, if not impossible, I hope, when we see each other as actual siblings. In the ancient Greco-Roman world, by the way, that was the gist of the philosophical virtue of self-control, controlling oneself sexually. Obviously, despite many philosophers valuing that virtue, others didn't, and the general public, not so much. Now, meekness and humility were also very countercultural and still very much are. First century honor-shame culture prized and rewarded aggression in males, whether that aggression be verbal, physical, or sexual aggression, and Judaism wasn't that much different from the rest of the world in that. Men engaged in aggressive verbal wars to see who could come out on top and who would sink to the bottom. This was normal life. But Yeshua made certain to stress the absolute worldliness of gaining honor in such a way, and that the way of the kingdom of heaven rewards the weak, the merciful, and the peacemakers, and that it is the peacemakers and not the bullies who are the sons of God. Again, the audience would have been flipping out because Yeshua was telling them that the female virtues were also supposed to be the male virtues. Yeshua was telling them not to practice Greco-Roman and ancient Near Eastern modes of masculinity. He told them that the kingdom of heaven was so completely different than what they believed they needed to be, that their entire lives needed to be turned upside down. And this should have been very obvious after the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple when God didn't reward the zealot rebellion which was worldly in every way you could imagine. And oh, if you haven't read what the first century Jewish historian Josephus had to say about the zealots, you know, they made the Romans look like saints. So you should definitely read the wars of the Jews. It's horrifying. As I said before, the early church practically used the Sermon on the Mount as the handbook for acceptable disciple behavior until all of a sudden they were no longer a persecuted minority and had an army at their beck and call. That's what happens to everyone, right? It's the way of the world and the beast kingdoms, which is why it's very hard for the church to be countercultural 
in all but the most glaringly obvious ways. Sure, we do a good job of teaching our kids not to twerk or do drugs, but those are just symptomatic of larger issues. We aren't teaching them to be kingdom people because it isn't safe or culturally masculine in America or many other places either, probably no place. But that's why we always have been taught to take up our crosses and follow him because his way isn't safe in the here and now. His way requires courage and transformation away from what brings honor in the world. The way of the kingdom isn't power and hierarchies and wealth and worldly honor, but oftentimes the exact opposite. I want to look at Galatians 5. I mean, look, I could teach on this for years and not exhaust it, but I really don't want to do that here. You guys can connect the dots. What I want to do is set the stage for teaching kids what the Bible tells us about actually being like Yeshua, what it means to be disciples, and what Galatians 5 tells us we will become as we let go of the world and take hold of the Spirit. People rarely read more than just verses 22 through 23 because what comes before is just painful to our worldly desires for artificial set-apartness and self-righteousness and misguided zeal and safety. I don't like it any more than you do, so let's just get it over with starting in verse 16. I say then, walk by the Spirit, and you will certainly not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is against the Spirit, and the Spirit desires what is against the flesh. These are opposed to each other so that you don't do what you want. But if you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are obvious. Let's see how obvious they are. Sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatreds, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions. Oh, and we always say our ambitions aren't selfish, right? Right. Dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. I am warning you about these things, as I warned you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And that's sobering, isn't it? But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is not against such things. Now, those who belong to Christ, Jesus, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So we're not supposed to stir that pot, guys. Okay, that hurt me. Did it hurt you? So what's obvious here in the works of the flesh? Are they really obvious? I see a lot of that stuff masquerading as ministry on social media and from the pulpit. I've been the victim of some of it, and I've done some of it. Our carnal minds are actually drawn to the people who are doing a lot of these things, and because of that, we make excuses for the other things too. But if you belong to political party A and would roast a person 
alive from political party B who did such and such, but you excuse it in your candidate and from the pulpit, then we have to ask exactly how unobvious these terrible things have become. Let's look at the works of the flesh that are actually now celebrated from the pulpit and in our political, public, and private lives that we turn a blind eye to when we're enjoying it or when it's good for us financially or safety-wise. Idolatry. Politics is probably our worst example here in America and something I never discuss with kids. I never discuss politics at all online, actually, because it's just... You can't take sides when everybody's terrible, all right? I've watched people excuse behavior that actors in Hollywood would get canceled over if the politician is good for their issues. And it's frankly worse in the church than outside it. And whatever we excuse, our kids are listening and watching and internalizing. If we can exalt a politician who is not only committing the works of the flesh, but bragging about it, we will never be able to wrestle our own children out of endorsing and copying the same behavior that they see us admiring and excusing and enabling. What's our political legacy? Who is it okay to destroy as long as the economy's good and our issues are being promoted? Do we have credibility with our kids when we turn a blind eye in the name of politics and promote commandment breakers and bullies as bastions of masculinity to be emulated and worse the cult of personality within our churches and exacerbated by social media where the worst behaving people in ministry draw the biggest crowds and get to write books telling men and women how to be men and women for the purpose of attracting the world into the faith by being more like the worldliness of another era generally the 1950s, white 1950s, and not less. And when these people fall into adultery or financial crimes or whatever, we defend them because their message feeds our flesh. Is that okay? Does that line up with anything Yeshua ever taught? Not about hatred. That's like the drug of choice in the church. We are specifically commanded not to hate in the Sermon of the Mount. And it's specifically modeled for us that we are to bless and forgive. But nowadays, if you are grieving and concerned for Palestinian children, which any feeling human being is when they take time to think about it calmly, you are accused of hating the Jewish people. How can love for Jews manifest as hatred for children when 50% of the population of Gaza was born after the last? election in 2006. It can't. We can and should and must love both, okay? When does love for the innocent on one side, and all children are innocent, even when we don't like to think about them, when does it mean hatred for the other side unless that is the general state of our hearts? Did loving and forgiving those who killed Yeshua mean that he endorsed their governments? We treat hatred as though it's a right and a virtue when one of the fruits of the Spirit is specifically a promise that as we yield to and mature in the Spirit that our love will grow and overpower and defeat our casual hatred. And then our deep-set hatred. 
Okay. Hatred compromises us. It's one of the underlying themes of the gospels. Sometimes I wonder if when Yeshua commanded his disciples and his followers to love their enemies, if someone accused him of hating the Jews, that's a flesh response. That's what we do these days. It's natural, but not representative of a cruciform life or mature fruit. It's worldly to hate and to preach and support hate and call it love. Uh, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, and envy. Some of the most popular preachers out there have all of these on open display uh, under the auspices of being zealous and speaking the truth in love. People who thrive on being angry and promoting anger even over the smallest things, who cannot tolerate any form of disagreement. I used to be like, who label everyone who is not in lockstep as other, dangerous, heretic, enemy, stupid, etc. Leaders who do not make disciples of Yeshua but of themselves, uh, openly ambitious instead of humble and meekly serving, cutting down anyone who seems threatening, creating factions, and being envious of the influence of others over the people around them. Teachers who would rather make up an answer to a question than send the questioner to another teacher. Gosh, I have received some terrible made-up answers from people who simply didn't know how to admit that they hadn't studied such and such. The creation of these hierarchies where we lord authority over one another the way Yeshua warned the pagan Gentiles did, which was actually a challenge lobbed directly at the powerful Sadducean priesthood. No wonder such things go hand in hand with sexual and financial abuse in congregations. Um, how about violence? Oh, we bristle with fear when we read the Sermon on the Mount and immediately say, but what if, instead of saying, Lord, I'm listening, my flesh is crawling right now and I don't like it, but I'm listening. How do we teach our children to take Messiah seriously when the first thing we say after each verse of the Sermon on the Mount is, yeah, but he can't mean that because that's dangerous and hard and scary? That's the beast kingdom in us, which is a kingdom of fear in all of us. And we teach it to our kids because it's been drilled into us that Jesus couldn't possibly mean for us to actually be in danger like the church usually has been throughout history whenever it isn't backed by political power in an army. That's antichrist. Because when we say things to countermand Yeshua or worse, use the constitution to negate what he's saying or common sense to sweep away his commands, we are doing exactly what the persecuted church never has done because they never could. Some of the last recorded words of Yeshua by Matthew are that we are to go into the world, or they were, the, the disciples, teaching people to do everything he commanded. There are five teaching blocks in that gospel, and the first and foundational one is the Sermon on the Mount. That's the manifesto of the kingdom of heaven in the new creation age. That's the narrow path. That's the meat we move on to after we learn to digest the milk of the basic commandments. That's the upside-down way we are called to live and be different 
And when we do, we prosper spiritually. But it requires a lot of trust. And it's hard. And everything in us screams against it. And it's never been any different for uh, any generation here in America. You know, none of us like it. We want to be safely enmeshed in some sort of artificial 1950s John Wayne type of masculinity where we can trust in big, strong white dudes to protect us while trying to avoid being forcibly kissed and even spanked instead of trusting in God despite his requiring us to live in a meager way that exposes us like a huge raw wound floating in a cesspool of infection. Now, I don't teach the kids anything like that. I teach them about Jesus and what love, joy, peace, patience, etc. look like, and I allow him and parents to do the rest. They are still children and they don't need to unlearn all the stuff that we need to unlearn. I don't want them to turn against the adults in their lives or feel unsafe in their homes. They aren't the ones choosing what to listen to from the pulpit or from politicians or whatever. They still see some things very clearly, and while we have come to force ourselves to see those bad things as good and normal, they are still very pliable and teachable. That's why we're supposed to be more like them and why the kingdom belongs to them and not so much to us. That's why we are supposed to be more like them and why the kingdom belongs to them and not to us. But they're walking away from the faith and from our politics because neither are modeling messianic character for them. And they can find more of it in the world, which is scary. And I can say that regardless of denomination or political party, our walks have to be in line with the teachings of Messiah and not something we have to make excuses for being the opposite of. Remember, Yeshua could have called down 10,000 legions of angels, but all he ever did was to flip over some tables and chairs once and to herd critters off the Temple Mount with a small whip that would have had to have been made of fabric or maybe his belt. That's self-control. And then he died for all those people involved. We can't ever forget that. That's radical, not worldly. So, um... In the past few weeks on Context for Kids, we've covered self-control and what Jesus did compared to what he could have done. And last week, it was mercy and gentleness and the parable of the ungrateful servant. Um, yesterday, I just recorded a program on what faithfulness actually meant in the ancient world. Uh, the word pistis, which is about uh, an atmosphere of complete trust going both ways. Um, Let's see. You know, I'm not going to be talking to them about rogue preachers or politicians. <laughs> you know, Jesus is enough. He really is. They can spot the counterfeit as long as we don't try to pass it off as the real thing. Frankly, the reason we see so many church abuse situations is because we have learned from our parents to accept abuse and bad behavior from anointed people. And we've been passing it down to the generations that follow us. And I'll see you next time I have something that I need to teach you how to teach the kids or get you to think about so you can support um, 
the lessons that that we're doing with the kids.